On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, welcome to Understanding Asset Protection and Income Tax Planning for IRAs after the Supreme Court's decision in Clark. I'm Bob Keebler, and I'll be your host today. Joining us today is Attorney Ed Morrow from KeyBank. Ed is a tax and estate planning lawyer and often quoted in national publications. Also joining us is prominent Ohio attorney Bo Leffler, an estate planning lawyer and former bankruptcy trustee. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Well, let's get started. Um, Obviously, the Supreme Court comes down, and they say inherited IRAs are not protected. And that was they were dealing with the conflict between uh, circuits with Chilton and NASA. Um, so now, Bo, walk us through a garden variety individual or couple's Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and get kind of granular. Explain what ha- can a, you know how a married couple files, and how an individual files, or if a married couple can file separately, and then a little bit into the detail about what gets protected um, and why state law seems to be so important. Sure, Bob. One of the, uh, one of the things that we typically, you know, look at, you know, kind of across our national landscape right now, and I'll focus on, is really what's called a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that's what was uh, applicable in this particular uh, in this particular case with Ruth Heffron, when she had um, her daughter, Heidi Heffron Clark, had gone ahead and um, filed bankruptcy in October of 2010. But I'm going to limit my discussion, you know, in the brief overview here of Chapter 7, bankruptcies. And what we look at, again, from both the the debtor's side and from the trustee side or creditor side is, what do they have? What's at stake? What do they bring into uh, this bankruptcy? Do they have assets? Do they have no assets? Um, And what are, in fact, the total uh, totality of the property interests uh, involved? And when we're looking at that, the federal code goes ahead and spells out specific exemptions that individuals who avail themselves, husbands and or wives, jointly or separately of assets that they can, in essence, retain. And those start with uh, the exemptions. And what we look at on the exemption side is we have federal exemptions and we have uh, also exemptions that are ultimately set forth uh, in respective state codes. With the, uh, we also um, go ahead and look at all of the debtor's interests as well, such as interests in trusts, um, which can be a really big issue, which we'll talk about here um, a little bit later. But what we also look for and, you know, what planners, you know, need to look for is, is the state, as you point out, Bob, is the state an opt-out state um, or is it a state that applies the federal bankruptcy exemptions? If you're an opt-out state like my state in Ohio and the vast majority of states throughout the U.S. are opt-out states, then the state exemptions 
apply. And those state exemptions vary greatly uh, state by state. And in that situation, if you're a state, if you're a planner, one of the things that if you're not an expert in bankruptcy, you want to go ahead and either you know, become knowledgeable about this or call your favorite bankruptcy attorney and say, hey, are we an opt-out state? Are we a state that applies bankruptcy exemptions, or do we have our own state exemptions? I think that it's very critical, and just planners in general, even those that do not practice in the area of bankruptcy, I think they need to know that to effectively, you know, go ahead and advise clients in these type of, uh, you know, situations that, uh, you know, that we're seeing. So, Bo, two questions. Whether you're an opt-in or opt-out state is determined by your state legislature? That's exactly right. For example, in Ohio, the state legislature went ahead and passed a rule that said under 11 U.S.C. 522, B is in boy, B1, 2 and 3, we're allowed to go ahead and opt out um, from the federal bankruptcy regime and scheme and go ahead and employ and set forth by statute our own exemptions. And again, those exemptions, you know, Bob, deal with one of the most critical ones, one of the most famous ones, the homestead exemption. Many of, I think, uh, planners in particular um, are familiar with the OJ case. And OJ, after uh, he was, um, uh, you know, had the not guilty plea, the famous not guilty plea in the criminal case, um, he ran off to Florida and um, put his money, uh, a lot of his money that he had left uh, from uh, surprisingly not paying all his uh, attorney fees into a residence. And, and that rule, um, you know, with regards to the homestead has changed and varies, uh, you know, state by state. But these exemptions, again, cover the equity in the home, cover motor vehicle, cover cash, you know, jewelry, um, a person's interest in, you know, professional tools, um, that sort of thing. Now, help me out before we go too much further. Um, married couple, do they go bankrupt together? Do they go bankrupt separately? Most often, um, and that's a great question, um, most often in, uh, in my experience, I would see where the husband and wives would go ahead and file together. And in some instances, there's some advantages you know, to that. Um, under uh, the bankruptcy laws and codes, you're allowed to stack exemptions meaning you can combine them. For example, with the homestead exemption here in Ohio, we have $125,000 in equity that can be protected. And so in that situation per individual, if we have a husband and wife together, we can effectively um, go ahead and protect $250,000. Uh, that's been inflation adjusted, so the amount is actually a little bit more. So, Bob, each bankruptcy situation is obviously going to warrant a discussion with a bankruptcy attorney and a bankruptcy expert to determine if it makes sense to go ahead and file as a couple or file individually. But what most of the time, I think there's going to be, um, you know, some impetus to file uh, collectively as husband and wife. And again, you have to look at when were the debts incurred, who incurred the debt, uh, that sort of thing. But uh, great question, great question. Now, Bo, when I teach the two-day IRA class, we talk about a couple of important concepts. One, 
which we're going to come back to later, is ERISA. Two is that in a bankruptcy, outside of state law, but under federal bankruptcy, if I have contributory IRAs, I have a million dollars worth of protection. And if I have rollover, nice, pure, pristine rollover IRAs, I'm going to have um, unlimited protection. Now, that's the that comes out of the Federal Bankruptcy Abuse and uh, Prevention and Consumer Protection Act, I think, in 2005. Um, yep. Can you give us some clarity to all this? And how, Now, how does that reconcile with what we just talked about with opt-in and opt-out provisions? Yeah, what you're uh, – um, and, and – you know, again, uh, uh, prompt me if I'm not, uh, you know, answering uh, answering the question, you know, the way uh, uh, you wanted me to cover it. But if we if we back up a little bit of backdrop on the amendments that took place uh, in 2005, the BAPTA amendments, um, with with some, uh, I, I kind of want to direct things to the IRA uh, arena. There was a patchwork of. IRA, uh, you know, exemptions dealing with tax-qualified retirement plans, and the goal, you know, of the 2005 amendments actually started way back in 1998 with the Hatch amendments, and in that particular situation, uh, Senator Hatch wanted to go ahead and provide this uniform exemption for all types of uh, tax-favored pension plans and assets and bankruptcy, including Roth IRAs. Um, and at the end of the day, his work, um, which he um, went ahead and proposed his legislation, it carried unanimously through the committees for over seven years. And, you know, the, the result of that um, was what we ended up, uh, ended up having is what we all thought of was, uh, uh, quite frankly, uh, uh, a very secure under uh, 522B3C and 522D12. Uh, that, you know, IRAs, retirement accounts were well protected um, under, uh, um, you know, under the federal bankruptcy regime and then ultimately, um, you know, under state law as well. And then we start having cases that chip away at that, um, and lo and behold, we end up getting uh, this Clark case, which, uh, you know, kind of uh, in many ways uh, surprised many practitioners that the court focused on this issue of what is a retirement plan. And, and Bob, I'll add uh, a quick uh, aside as well. The million dollars is adjusted for inflation every three years, and you may get even greater than that for contributory IRAs, depending on your state, because you're coming under a different code section, you know, B3A rather than the B3C that was decided in the Clark case. But is that million dollars a floor for contributory IRAs if you're in an opt-out state that doesn't protect IRAs? Well, more of a, of a ceiling, I guess you would call it. Uh, it's a ceiling, it, it, yeah. So if you are so, in a state okay. that would not otherwise unlimited protect uh, IRAs like Maine or California or somewhere, then you would want to rely on the federal bankruptcy provisions to protect it, and, and there the contributory million-dollar cap adjusted for inflation would apply. So if your state only had a $400,000 exemption out state, out state, you could still rely on the million dollars? Correct. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Um, Ed, basically, it's those provisions added in 2005 that Clark had a look at. Um, can you walk us through 
what the court did in Clark and, and why it's so important to, for everybody to understand? Well, he, you know, the, the Clark case and a lot of the cases that were underneath it uh, and why the, the court took the, the case in the, in the beginning was they're interpreting this Section 522B3C, and even though this court, did, you know, there's identical language under Section D12. It wasn't in, discussed in the case, but there's identical language there, too, that applies in other situations. But what they're getting at is, you know, there's language in there that protects quote, retirement funds to the extent that those funds are in a fund or account that is exempt from taxation under code section 401, 403, 408, 408A. All those code sections that we're reading off, of course, are your qualified plans, your 403Bs, and your IRAs and Roth IRAs. So what the creditor attorneys were trying to say is, wait a minute, wait a minute. Retirement funds don't include funds that you inherited from somebody else. Now, a lot of people kind of reading a common sense reading would say, well, I, I don't know if it's retirement funds. Why does that have a special definition? Um, but there was no uh, there was no definition in the in the law. So, you know, saying what's a retirement fund and what's not. And so, of course, creditors said, well, retirement funds don't mean inherited money. Uh, and the debtors said, well, of course, it means inherited money. <laughs> you know, and that's and that's why we got conflicting court cases. <laughs> No, and that, that's important to understand. Let's turn a second to spousal inherited IRAs. Now, let me let's lay this out so we understand exactly what we're looking at. When I die, I can leave my IRA to my wife, and she can leave it in my name and later do a rollover, or she can take it right away and roll it over in her own name like I never existed. Or if I've done my job right, I can have it payable to a trust for my wife which maybe gives us more asset protection. But let's just stop right at the fact that I die. Uh, I'm 53 years old. My IRA goes to my wife, and she leaves it, Robert Keebler, for the benefit of Bonnie Keebler. Um, when I read the quotations from the court uh, that retirement funds can't come from other people, it makes me a bit, bit curious if I die and my wife is the beneficiary, uh, does she truly have retirement funds? Well, and I think that's the $64,000 question or or million-dollar question, depending on how much your IRA is worth, uh, you know, because we really don't know. the when, when you look at some of the quotations and the language from the court, it looks like any inherited IRA is not, quote, retirement funds under that particular code section. Um, now, of course, the, the Clark case didn't have to do with a spouse, um, so the court really didn't address that specifically. But when you read some of the language and what they mean by retirement funds, and, you know, uh, <laughs> it, it certainly begs the question, Bob, of whether an inherited IRA is really going to be protected, uh, even if it's held and, by a spouse. And and, and I would add, uh, Bob, that, you know, the Clark decision did not address exemptions, you know, under state law. Um, and, you know, again, I think you're really uh, asking the $64,000 question that, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, down the road there will be uh, um, another decision. And, you know, bankruptcy trustees, uh, you know, being charged with, um gathering assets and being incentivized to do so, uh, we end up, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, having a, a challenge down the road, you know, to that. 
So, well, let's, let's come down on. Go ahead. So let's flash back. Um, you you wake up tomorrow morning. You're back being a bankruptcy trustee. Um, this person comes before you. Their husband died four years ago, and the IRA is still um, Dick Dick Jones deceased for the benefit of Jane Jones. Uh, his trustee, I presume, it sounds like you would go after that. And that is one of the uh, the first issue we're going to obviously look at, Bob, is you know take a look at which state are we in. Again, are we in an opt-out state? Secondly, um, and Ed in his uh, well-written uh, you know, Weinberg article uh, points out that there are um, a number of states, and we would be charged with again both as a trustee and both as a uh, you know debtor's bankruptcy attorney um, and or any sort of advisor. Uh, you know, advising clients in this situation is, what do your state rules say about inherited IRAs? Currently, um, there are um, a number of states, Ohio being one of them. I actually was the co-author of the language that we have in our state that exempts inherited, you know, IRAs. And that we ran, uh, of course, we ran the language by uh, by Ed as well. Had him review it, but you know, Texas and Florida, to name some other states, you know, have this uh, have this language and protection as well for inherited IRAs, which really gives us a nice uh, you know a nice carve out and an additional argument. But those are the first two things you're going to look at. If we are in a state that doesn't have an inherited uh, IRA statutory specific protection, um, you know, I I think you're going to start to see some challenges, you know, by some bankruptcy trustees, you know, with regards, you know, to this, uh, you know, really specified uh, and specific area. Um, you, you have to go through that analysis, which I think you're getting to. You're saying, hey, you know, Bo, take me through it. How would you, uh, what's the decision tree? What are some of the things we're looking at? And you're exactly right. That's what we have to do. But, you know, heading to kind of your, you know, your your, your next point um, is really we need to educate these advisors about, you know, what is out there and what are the options that are going to put our clients in a better position. So it sounds to me like until a spouse rolls an IRA over, we're really not sure um, what we have from a bankruptcy or asset protection standpoint. Is that is that fair right now? I think that's certainly fair to say, um, Bob, unless you happen to live in one of the seven states that protects inherited IRAs. And, and, and you have to meet the residency requirements as well uh, to qualify for those. So if you've lived for two years in Ohio or Florida uh, or Texas or one of these states that protect inherited IRAs, then you're probably good to go. But, yeah, you, you bring up – it certainly uh, begs the question if you're not in one of those states. And, and I so think Ed, um, and, and I wanted to add to Ed's uh, you know comment, Bob, that uh, in this analysis or this decision tree, as advisors, you know, we we need again to find out if we're an opt-out state. Um, number two, we need to know if there's a specific section dealing with inherited IRAs. Number three, we should talk about the residency uh, and domicile issue as well. 
make sure we don't have, uh, you know, a, a army family moving around. If we do, we need to, you know, kind of, uh, kind of tie that down. But, um, you know, this, uh, uh, <laughs> this decision, you know, really sets in motion, um, I think, the beginning of, 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 of different ways that we have to approach, you know, these type of uh, what previously has been a relatively straightforward, simple process of uh, dealing with rollovers with spouses and with non-spouses. So, Ed, even once my wife does a rollover, in your article, you, you thought there might still be some risk. It may not close the case. Can you, can you walk us through that? Well, let's say, uh, well, I point out that uh, if, whenever you're converting something from a non-protected status to protected status, so let's say we're not in one of those seven states that, that, that Bode mentioned that protects inherited IRAs, let's say I'm in uh, you know, California, for instance, or somewhere like that, um, you know, or another different state, well, if I convert it from a, an inherited IRA to a rollover IRA in, in my own name that I inherited from my wife, for instance, well, then the question is, okay, could that possibly be a fraudulent transfer? Um, now, if I don't have any creditors on the horizon and I'm completely solvent, there's probably nothing to worry about. Um, but if I just, if that happened to be the case, though, I think the creditor or bankruptcy trustee could say, hey, wait a minute, you just converted something from non-protected status to protected status. We're going to try to void that transfer. Uh, and it's it may be a rare occurrence, but you know Murphy's law, you know, you know if I've got two doctors clients, I may want to tell them about this possibility. Um, you know that it, you may inherit, and if you roll it over, that you know somebody may try to avoid that as a fraudulent transfer. Normally, moving anything from IRAs isn't considered a fraudulent transfer because it's protected in the first place. So if I, you know, uh, if I have tons of creditors on the horizon and I take money out of my IRA and our qualified plan and give it to my daughter, that's, that's probably not going to be a fraudulent transfer because it was protected in the first place. But if it was somehow not protected, uh, then it, it potentially could be subject to fraudulent transfer action. So, Bo, on the fraudulent transfer idea first, there, is there really a transfer, though? I mean, it's, you know, Bob for the benefit of Bonnie, and then Bonnie just rolls it over in her own name. It seems That's, very passive. Uh, you're, you're, <laughs> you're exactly right. Unfortunately, the Uniform Fraudulent Transfer Act doesn't, um, uh, in your choice of words, Bob, is a good one, it doesn't distinguish between, you know, a passive or active, you know, transfer. It's any type of, uh, you know, transfer, voluntary, involuntary. And so Ed, as he pointed out in his articles, uh, in his article, excuse me, um, it is, uh, uh, is hitting on an issue that we're starting to see uh, percolate, uh, if you will, um, amongst creditors, attorneys, uh, amongst bankruptcy trustees. Um, for example, the Estate Planning Council uh, here in, in Ohio, which I'm a member, I chair the Asset Protection and Legacy Trust Subcommittee. Just recently, we were dealing and we are looking at that particular issue of a transfer of an IRA, um, again, unwittingly in the course of transferring from a husband to wife, does that constitute um, a fraudulent transfer per the state statutes? And, um, you know, we're 
trying to work on, quite frankly, some, uh, you know, some carve-out language to make sure that uh, it does not. But I agree with Ed, and looking at it through the eyes of a bankruptcy trustee, um, they are definitely going to start giving this sort of thing uh, second looks, second and third looks, to see what was going on. Because, Bob, as a bankruptcy trustee, you have, um, you know, you are charged with at the 341 hearing, which the 341 hearing, you know, is the first meeting of creditors. The debtor is to appear and answer questions by the bankruptcy trustee under oath as well as any creditors who are there. And one of the first things we do as bankruptcy trustees is we have a host of, you can imagine, a set number of questions, um, you know, all the way from, you know, again, marital status, um, you know, where are they working, assets that they currently have, assets that they might inherit, uh, have they been notified uh, of any inheritances or winnings or what have you. But I can see on the horizon um, some additional questions starting to be asked. Have you inherited, you know, an IRA from uh, maybe not your spouse who's here with you uh, who's filing bankruptcy, but, again, looking at the Clark case, uh, from any relatives? Uh, or anyone for that matter. I, I can see that uh, I can see that progression, you know, with the uh, due diligence review. Ed, in, in your article, you mentioned a 10-year statute of limitations. Um, walk us through that. I mean, that's basically, I think, under 548E of the code. Yes, and uh, this has gotten most press in the domestic asset protection trust arena. Uh, you may recall the, the Huber case and the Mortensen case uh, out west. But what 548E says is, you know what, we're going to extend the statute of limitations beyond the typical two or four years that might apply. And we're going to make it a 10-year statute of limitations if, for any transfers to a self-settled trust or similar device. And of course, the similar device really isn't defined at all. Could a similar device be an insurance policy? Could it be uh, LLC? Well, one court had decided, well, it could be an IRA. You know, an IRA smells and tastes a lot like a self-settled trust, doesn't it? It's just a trust with special tax characteristics, I think. So conceivably, you know, if somebody uh, could, you know, could prove a fraudulent intent, I suppose a bankruptcy trustee or creditor could try to come after a rollover in that vein. It, you know, there, for that statute, you have to prove actual fraud, which is uh, not just a solvency balance test where you, you have to kind of prove some of these badges of fraud, you know. Uh, so it may be, you know, it may be difficult, but it's, again, not impossible, as, as Bo said. The bankruptcy trustee is certainly going to at least look into this possibility of that. Well, this is very intriguing, you know, these fraudulent transfers, but assuming we get by all that, we should be protected in our bankruptcy. Is that correct? Yeah. So if, uh, let's say that there's no fraudulent intent or maybe, you know, the person's completely solvent, there weren't any creditors on the horizon, you know, then the question is, okay, well, it's now rolled over into an IRA. You know, you want to look at the uh, state statutes then or under the uh, the, the bankruptcy code. And, and since you'd still be qualify under B3C, uh, you know, uh, of the of the bankruptcy code, I think you'd, you're probably safe then from that point. So basically, let's jump over to the ERISA world, 403B, 457, 401K pension plans. 
how do these accounts differ? Are they at all impacted by Clark? Well, it, that's a good question. And, you know, ERISA accounts could conceivably con come under a different code section altogether. Um, and so if – and this may make a difference if somebody's, in, you know, considering bankruptcy and they just inherited a 401K. This may make a difference for them maybe not to, to, to rush into a, a rollover, for instance. So uh, an ERISA account – if it qualifies for ERISA protection, comes under 541 of the Bankruptcy Code rather than 522 of the Bankruptcy Code, which is what we were discussing earlier and what the Clark case discussed. And it's what they call an exclusion, which works a lot like an exemption. But, you know, if, if the ERISA plan qualifies, then it comes under this exclusion, and it should be protected whether it's inherited or not um, because it's, it's using a different definition. In other words, the Clark case really shouldn't affect affect ERISA plans and until we at least get another another case potentially in the future, but the Clark case shouldn't affect the ERISA plans the same way. Bob, if I can add um, to Ed's comments, we also have the U.S. Supreme Court decision um, of Patterson versus Shoemate, which talked about funds held in an employer's pension plan were not property, you know, of the estate. And as Ed pointed out, they're they're looking at some of these and looking at some of these differences. The employer plans were required to contain this anti alienation language, um, which, you know, the Supreme Court had had held uh, is sufficient to keep them from ever becoming property of the estate. And whereas IRAs do not have the same anti-alienation, you know, protection. And again, I, I know we're getting very kind of detailed and specific here, but um, I think you raise a very good, a very good point. And uh, Ed's uh, article and his elaboration on this, uh, I think, is uh, again correct. Looking at it from the bankruptcy side, you know, as well, you know, we we back up again a little bit, when the filing of a bankruptcy petition takes place, it creates a bankruptcy estate. Section 541 of the code governs what constitutes property of the estate. There is some exceptions there, and what you're pointing out, Bob, and Ed is as well, the exceptions are under 541 uh, C2, that's where we like to take a look at, uh, in particular, um, the exceptions under you know, that particular section. And, um, you know, that, uh, again, with, you know, employer uh, direct ERISA plans, with uh, discretionary trusts, uh, 541C2, you know, is a safe harbor. And I'll, I'll just add real quickly, Bob, there, there are, even though ERISA generally has some strong protections, there are some exceptions to ERISA protection. If you have an owner-only plan or a owner and spouse only, you know, or partners only plans, those may not necessarily get the ERISA protection, uh, you know, and so they may have to try to come under 522 rather than 541 of the bankruptcy protection. So, and there's even some cases if you don't have a trust, does it still get the same exclusion under 541? And some accounts, like a 5403B annuity, wouldn't necessarily be in the form of a trust. So, you know, you know that, that could raise uh, some additional issues for, for some ERISA accounts. Now, for everyone that's hanging in there after going through this labyrinth of rules created by Clark, let's talk about solutions. 
before someone dies. But if there's creditor problems, it's pretty easy that if I have all kinds of creditor problems and my dad's health is failing, he should work with his estate planning lawyer, create a trust, and for the most part, a good, solid accumulation trust in the right state with very good distribution language, meaning totally discretionary, um, is going to give us a lot of asset protection. But you know, conduit trust isn't going to work very well. A trusted IRA uh, where distributions are mandatory may not work so well. Um, but basically, do you guys agree with that, or is that oversimplified? No, I think that's a great generalization, Bob. I mean, the the one thing that you, you do give up a little bit is if your surviving spouse, you know, a conduit trust or trustee IRA does get a little bit better um, uh, life expectancy. In other words, in other words, longer stretch out because you can recalculate the life expectancy every year. So you're giving up a little bit, uh, but you're right. For a creditor and asset protection, a just purely discretionary trust would have to be the way to go. But if somebody wants something a little bit in between, uh, I suppose they could go the conduit trust route to get a little bit better uh, tax protection. But I, I would think most people that really want to do it for tax reasons would probably just do an IRA rollover uh, direct. So what what is the right protocol then for, let's just start with a financial advisor. Husband dies, wife comes to see the financial advisor. Um, wife is average middle class person, no major creditor issues right now. Um, she's 60 years old. It's fair to say they should probably just roll that over, but there still exists the possibility of maybe she could disclaim into the trust. And the real question becomes, should the financial advisor be encouraging that surviving spouse to at least talk to the probate or estate planning attorney, perhaps even to, and if that surviving spouse is a physician or architect, maybe she should be talking to a, a bankruptcy attorney like Bo before she makes these decisions? Yeah, and I, think you're I, exactly I would add right. – uh, and, uh, you know, at least maybe have a, a disclaimer backup. Uh, maybe you know. In other words, okay, we're gonna we're gonna try to do a rollover, but at least let's set it in place so that if uh, if creditors are on the horizon at the time uh, the you know the original owner dies, that maybe we can disclaim into a protective trust, and that might be another way to go as well. I think too, okay. Bob. It, it warns uh, you know the points that you're you're bringing out the focus of, you know, what is the beneficiary designation. Um, let's update those. Let's uh, go ahead and, you know, schedule, um, you know, meetings, you know, with the clients. Uh, if they're CPAs, uh, the suggestion, you know, to the clients when you're meeting with them on an annual or semi-annual basis, let's double-check those beneficiary, you know, designations. And, you know, I think it, it warrants possibly putting the trust first and the spouse second and looking at maybe a disclaimer from the trust to the spouse instead of putting the, uh, the spouse first and the trust second. Um, I, I think those should all, all be on the table. And to your point about, 
you know, having a consult, you know, with a, uh, a state planning or asset protection, you know, attorney um, who has familiarity with, you know, the bankruptcy rules and, you know, what we're looking at with each uh, particular state where, uh, you know, where the planning is taking, uh, taking place. By the way, I got to ask you this. You had to have known this was going on. This was in your backyard in the state of Wisconsin, of all places, right, Bob? This uh, Clark oh, case. <laughs> we've, we've been following this very closely, and it's been an intriguing case. And the important thing is that everyone realizes, to some extent, the game has changed. Um, and you guys have done a wonderful job today of walking us through those changes. And on behalf of Lineberg Information Services, uh, we want to thank you for that. This has been Bob Keebler with Ed Morrow of Key Bank and Ohio attorney Bo Leffler discussing the Clark case and its implications for estate and asset protection planning. Thank you for joining us today.